The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Well, we started looking at this last Sunday, Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, is the longest sentence in the Bible. It is 202 words. And so I felt a little bad ending in the middle of someone's sentence, but at that length, we thought it was okay to split it into two Sundays. And so last week we illustrated that this incredible sentence is like touring the Biltmore Mansion and seeing the majestic grace of God in Christ, who is the mansion in which we can dwell, to find this grace one room at a time. And so we saw from from room number one, in verse 3 and 4, that God's amazing grace for us in Christ is from which every spiritual blessing is found. In room 4, I'm sorry, verse 4, the first room, we read that the Lord chose us in Him. So we read of God's choice in Christ as His grace. Then we saw in verse 5, God's adoption for us in Christ, which was our second room. And then we saw in verse 7, God's redemption in Christ, which was our third room. And then verse 6 has a phrase that we see throughout the verse, to the praise of His glorious grace. That is like the pathway, the foyer, the hallway through which you must explore this mansion. You can't go anywhere without the eternal echo redounding. Praise God for His glorious grace. This week we continue. So the title of today's sermon is God's Amazing Grace in Christ, Part 2. And if you are using the Pew Bible, it's page 1159. Otherwise, you'll want your Bible open to Ephesians. We'll be in Ephesians throughout the morning, especially looking at this one sentence, verses 3 through 14, and at some other passages that are in the book. We continue now in room number 4. Having seen the first three rooms and the past way of God's glorious grace, now look with me in verse 9. Here we see how God, in this fourth majestic room of the mansion, has revealed His mysterious will to us in Christ. Again, God being the doer, accomplishing all this in His Son to those who don't deserve it but receive it by grace. Look now in verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose. Notice then that God the Father has a will, a decree, and He must reveal it. And He does so according to His own purpose. But He has done this, notice, in Christ. Verse 9 ends, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Well, I think the first thing we notice here is the word mystery in verse 9. We want to pause and make sure we understand what the word mystery means. I am someone who loves a good whodunit, (laughs) whether it's Sir Arthur Conan Doyle or Queen Agatha Christie. I've read a lot of them, and I've enjoyed them all. My daughter is in third grade, and she has carried this on for me, and I don't think I'm overstating it to say that in the Wake County Public Library System, we have exhausted every copy of the Boxcar Children and the Nancy Drew Diaries. We've used them all. We've read them all. She has nothing left. The last time we were there, I gave her hardy boys and said, you have to start reading those too. So so that's where we're at at this point. We love mysteries in our house. But is, is that what the word mystery means here in the Bible? 
It's used only 27 times in the New Testament. 21 of them are used by Paul. But it doesn't mean a puzzle that you solve. It doesn't mean a whodunit that you figure out. In fact, it is not something that humans can attain. A mystery is something that God must disclose and reveal by grace. Let me show you that so you don't think I'm just coming up with that. Flip a couple pages to chapter 3. And verse 3, if you would. So chapter 3, verse 3. I want you to see that mysteries in the Bible are something that God alone can reveal. So in Ephesians 3, verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me, notice, by revelation, as I have written briefly. So in order for a mystery to be known, it must be revealed by the person who alone knows it inexhaustibly, and that person is God. Go back to chapter 1, if you would, and I want you to see that actually we need God's grace and His Spirit even as believers, to comprehend receptively the mystery of God. So we're now back in Ephesians 1. Pick up in verse 17, please, if you would. Ephesians 1. We read these earlier, but Ephesians 1, verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit, notice, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. So God has to give a spirit and has to give revelation. And then verse 18, we have to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened that we may know. So unless God, by His Spirit, enlightens our eyes, we cannot and will not receive truth. I want to pause on this for a minute because I've noticed Christians using phrases that have good meaning, but I'm, I'm afraid maybe we're using them unintentionally, incorrectly, to describe how truth is understood. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, all truth is God's truth. Have you heard that phrase before? All truth is God's truth. There's some good things about that phrase, but sometimes what it kind of connotes is the idea that, well, the Bible has some truth, and that's nice, but there's lots of things we need to know that aren't in the Bible, but we'll just go out and discover them. So if I'm an expert in birds or stem cells or political theory, and I spend my life on those subjects, I might say, well, the Bible doesn't give me very much, so I'll go out and I'll discover that truth, but after all, all truth is God's truth, so when I discover it, then I'll make it my own. But actually, philosophically, that's a little bit more like X-Files. The truth is out there. And I'll just go get it, and then when I've received it, I can build truth. Uh, Another way this is often explained is sometimes called the two-book theory. The two-book theory goes like this. Well, there is the Bible, and the Bible's nice, but then there's all this truth outside of the Bible that's like a second book of knowledge. But let me remind us of a couple obvious things this morning. We actually only have one book. We don't have a second book. That's why Psalm 19 begins by saying, the heavens declare the glory of God, but then it goes on to say they have no speech, they have no words. And then in verse 7 it says, the law of the Lord perfects the soul. So we only have the one book. So we actually need this one book to be the lens through which we would understand any truth, anywhere. Because think about it, the way you study birds or stem cells or political theory rests entirely on questions that are underneath it that you presuppose. Where are we from? What's wrong with the world? Where is it all going? What can make it right? That totally affects the way you view anything you would study. But there's a further reason that this passage ought to humble us, and it's this one. No one approaches truth neutrally. 
So no one ever comes to a set of facts without inclinations or disinclinations underneath them. And that is why two people can look at the same thing and come to totally different conclusions. We want the truth to say something. We want the truth to go some direction. We want the truth to end up at a certain conclusion. So brothers and sisters, let the word of God humble this morning. We need the spirit of God. And we need the Spirit of God to enlighten our eyes. We are not capable in our own effort of the humility that it takes to receive truth. The Bible says in Romans 1, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So this is actually a wonderful thing that God discloses a mystery. Well, what is the mystery that he's disclosing? Well, in Ephesians 3, Jesus Paul will say more about it. You don't have to turn there. I'll just summarize it to you. He goes on to say that the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, heirs of the same body, of the same purpose in Christ. Now, you might know the Bible well enough to know, how is that a mystery? How is it a mystery that God loves all peoples and he's willing for any people to come unto the Lord? How is that a mystery? In Genesis 12, verse 3, God tells Abraham that he'll have a descendant through which all the nations or families of the earth can be blessed. So how is it mysterious that God desires anybody to come to know the Lord? But didn't I just explain that truth requires a humbling work of the Holy Spirit? It's not a mystery in the sense that God had never spoken to this before. He had spoken to it in part. It's a mystery in the sense that he adds fuller revelation after Christ has come. But more importantly, the Spirit of God convicts us in ways that melt us to God's saving purposes. In that sense, it's a mystery. But the mystery is more even than just Gentiles and Jews coming together in Christ. Look again in Ephesians 1, the passage that we're really focusing on most. Ephesians 1, verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of His will. Here's this big thing that God is disclosing progressively at perfect measure according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time. And here's the full end of this mystery. Here's where it goes. To unite all things in Him. Things in heaven and things on earth. The word unite is a very long Greek word that also means to sum up or to recapitulate. Picture a lawyer's closing argument. In the closing argument, you sum up everything that was preceding and bring it to its climax. Here's what God's big decree is working towards. God has chosen to create the world. He's chosen to work out his decree in the world. He's chosen to work out his will. What is it culminating towards? It's culminating towards everything uniting around Jesus Christ. The eternity that God has made the world for is for Jesus not merely to be the agent that culminates history, but to be the center around which the created cosmos revolves. He is the focal point of all of our eternal praise. Now you could ask a very sincere question this morning. Wait, Josh, if it says that God has united all things in heaven and all things on earth in Christ, does that mean that everyone will automatically go to heaven, that everyone will be eternally saved? Well, let me give two quick answers. First, don't forget that everything we're reading about in Ephesians 1 is in Christ. These are things that are happening to those who are in the house of God's grace. But this time I do want you to flip. Can you chip 
Flip to chapter 5 with me, please. In Ephesians, flip to chapter 5 so that you can see from the Word of God itself that not everyone will end in the eternal kingdom of Christ if we refuse Christ. So Ephesians 5, pick up please in verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. These scriptures make inarguably clear that not everyone will spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. But hear this at this moment. This is why today is the day of salvation. Because these verses describe us all. Who among us is not an idolater? Who among us has not been sexually impure? Who among us has never desired what we ought not desire? We are all guilty. This is why it is amazing that if we will come to Christ, we receive these eternal blessings. Thus, we should surely call on the Lord now. But we should also remember that though the world is not what it should be today, one day it will be. Some of our best songs remind us of that. I love the hymn, This is My Father's World. Two of the verses are taken from Ephesians 1. Here's what they say. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven will be one. That's what we just read here in Ephesians 1. Can I remind you, brother and sister, whatever happens today, as bad as it may be, it is not the final day. The final day is when God unites earth and heaven in one. Now, I won't preach these passages today because Lord willing, we'll get a chance to look at them in future Sundays. But Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 4 spend a lot of time saying that since God's going to unite earth and heaven in Christ, today the church ought to be a display of such unity. The church ought to preview as a kingdom outpost the kingdom that God is ushering in. Now, would you flip to chapter 3, please? And in chapter 3, look at the closing verses in verse 20 and 21. If you're here this morning, and honestly, you are at aught with somebody else, you have friction with someone else, you have relational disharmony, I want to remind you that the same God who's going to unite heaven and earth in Jesus can absolutely bring harmony and reconciliation between you and that person. You ought to bring that friction to Jesus. Look in verse 20 of chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Can he reconcile that? Yes. According to the power at work in us, to him be glory, notice, in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The disharmony we have with one another can be fixed by Jesus. And he wants to do that because the church is meant to display the unification that he will ultimately bring. Please notice again that the church and Jesus are put together in verse 21. 
We live in a moment where it's popular to say, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I have a relationship with God, but I just don't want to be with God's people. I was taught a phrase years ago. It went like this. To dwell above with saints we love, oh, that'll be glory. To dwell below with saints we know, that's another story. (laughs) It's a good reminder of the reality of what it's like to live on earth. But friends, I want to remind you that actually one of the greatest things God does is He brings people like you and I who naturally really don't have a ground of commonality, but in Christ, He unites beyond explanation. John Calvin wrote, The whole world is a theater to display the divine goodness, wisdom, justice, and power of God, but the church is its orchestra, the most conspicuous part of it. This is God's intention through the church to show what He can unify that otherwise wouldn't be. Join me back in our main sentence, please. Ephesians 1. Now we pick up in verse 11. Remember, we're going room by room of this majestic mansion. Last Sunday we did rooms 1, 2, and 3. Today we've already done room 4, but this is now room 5. Room 5 is the inheritance God gives us. Look in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 1. In Him. Okay, don't trip over those two words. They're given 11 times for a reason. This only happens in Christ. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance. An inheritance is what is bequeathed to someone. It is the promises. It is everything that is held on to. It is the will and testament of God. And God gives it in His Son. We've been given an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. First, I'll point out something very subtle in the text. In verses 4 and 7, we and us are pronouns that are used interchangeably. We and us are the same people group. But here in verses 11 through 13, we and you have some contrast. We heard something, then you heard something. We responded, then you joined us. Who is Paul referring to in verses 11 through 13? Who responded first and who responded second? Many commentators think he means the Jews responded with opportunities first and Gentiles second. That's very possible based on what he'll say in chapter 2. Or it could more simply mean those who heard it responded first. In either case, notice they've responded to the praise of his glory. So let's break down a couple of the big concepts in these verses Verses 10 and 11, we have an inheritance. What a blessing this idea is that God has made clear to us that all that God has promised, all that God can do, God gives in His Son. An inheritance that cannot be lost. I love how 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 puts it, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. Now what does it mean that God predestines everything? Verse 11 might be hard for you to hear. Verse 11 says that God predestines all things according to the counsel of His will. This is actually good news that God predestines everything. Let me quote R.C. Sproul. If there's one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. 
see, that's how we ought to respond to the predestination of God. Rather than saying, where is my freedom? We ought to say, praise God that there are no molecules running loose. Everything is under his sovereign plan that he is predestined from eternity past. But let me pause and deal with a very real objection. When we talk about the fact that God has predestined everything, the reason, to be fair, that can be hard is because in life we may experience serious suffering. And then the question is no longer philosophical, it's personal. People come up to me and they'll say things like, Josh, I was born into a home where I was sexually abused from the time I was a child. God predestined that? I was born in a country and in an era where all I've known is suffering. God predestined that? How is that good and right? How can God predestine a world that is full of so much sorrow and evil? These questions are real and personal, and they're worth considering. What we ought to start by saying is that the Bible teaches that God's sovereignty over the universe does not mean that he's the effective cause or author of evil ever. James chapter 1, verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Verse 14, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So yes, God has ordained a world capable of great suffering, but God is not culpable for any sin or suffering. In our real moral agency and freedom, we are. Remember, friend, that God's true sovereignty and humans' real responsibility are presented as side-by-side complementary truths in the Bible. Acts 2 is one of my favorites. Peter is preaching and he says, Men of Israel, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He says this was God's definite plan, and yet you are culpable for your part in it. As we see throughout the Bible, God's good intent is always above and beyond man's evil intent, even in the same act. I think there's a reason why then. We are drawn towards those who have written diaries in concentration camps and those who have praised God through quadriplegia because they're putting their finger on something that the Bible tells us. The suffering of this life is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to follow. Romans 8, 28. For we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. As we just saw in verse 10, he's uniting all things in Christ. So the suffering that he ordains but does not cause, ultimately by him will accomplish a beauty that we cannot currently picture. Have you ever been to a castle or a big mansion and you notice on the wall a coat of arms or a tapestry and it looks beautifully woven together? But have you ever flipped one of those things over and seen the back? It's a mess. There's all these knots and all these things that don't seem to be going any place. And that's how we see life from our perspective. But friend, he's uniting all things in Christ. Even the sinful things done freely by culpable humans, he has a good overriding purpose and intention for. All right, you could ask even further, Josh, why would God create a world 
that even has that probability? Why not just begin with the end? Why not just create the new heavens and the earth first? Why create the Garden of Eden and then have Adam and Eve fall and have us go through all this? I have reams of notes that I'm going to cut out for everybody's sake this morning. I'll just give one of my five answers. Here's the one that I'll share this morning. Because the journey matters. The journey from the cross to the tomb matters. The journey from the Garden of Eden to the new heavens and the new earth matters. And your journey from your birth until your final day matters too. The journey is not an accident, nor is it incidental. When God created, He showed us Himself as powerful Creator. But isn't it more beautiful that now we know God as dying Savior, rising Redeemer, lover of my wayward soul? See, the journey matters. Jonathan Edwards wrote that in Christ, our bad things will turn out for good, our good things will never be lost, and the best things are yet to come. Have you ever seen a rainbow in completion? I don't mean a rainbow where you see one end and then you kind of see the other end. I mean, maybe you'll have to look this up online. A rainbow that you see is a full circle all the way around. Do you know why humans don't see rainbows as full circles? Because of two reasons. Number one, the earth gets in the way. And number two, we're not at an exalted enough height to see it in its entirety. So also is the plan of God. The earth gets in the way, and we don't have the right height to see it in its completion. But friend, he is building a rainbow. So look in verse 12. Why did God create? So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. The full rainbow is the full expression of all that makes God glorious, which is all that our heart craves and needs. That's why He made what He made. Now we come to the sixth room. Having seen the fourth and the fifth today, the sixth room is verses 13 and 14. God seals in Christ. So we've seen already that God elects, God adopts, God redeems. We've seen today how God brings people to himself in predestination. But now look in verse 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Please notice that God's election that we read about in verse 4 and God's predestination that we read about in verse 5 and 11 does not take away the responsibility for someone to believe in verse 13. What God has ordained from eternity past is still carried out in real experience in our lifetime. Verse 13 says, when you heard it. So there is a time that you hear it, and then there's a time you believe in it. God's plan is fulfilled in our actual living. Again, I remind us that God's sovereignty and human responsibility are parallel. Let me quote the inimitable Charles Spurgeon. Here's how he put it. That God predestines and yet that man is responsible are two facts that few can see clearly. They're believed to be inconsistent or contradictory, but they are not. The fault is our weak judgment. True truths cannot be contradictory to each other. If then I find in the part of one section of the Bible everything is foreordained, that is true. If I find in another section of the Bible 
that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is only my folly that leads me to imagine that these two truths could ever contradict each other. Spurgeon continues, I do not believe they can ever be welded into one upon any earthly anvil, but they certainly shall be one in eternity. For they are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the human mind which pursues them farthest will never discover that they converge, but they do converge and they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God whence all truth doth spring. I want to remind you this morning, don't try to reconcile what is already friends. As I illustrated last week, it's like two rails on a singular train track and they run, but then beyond our purview, they meet together. Deuteronomy 29.29 tells us the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Them which are revealed are for us to obey. So how do we live practically knowing that God is sovereign and yet we are responsible? Let me just tell you how this affects my own fathering. God has blessed Stephanie and I with five children. And we care very, very deeply about their eternal salvation. But can I tell you, I have never and would never, ever ask whether or not they're elect, ever. You know why I would never ask that? Because that's God's rail, and He's got it. My responsibility is my rail, which is why at night I pray with them, I sing to them, I tell them about Jesus in the grocery store, in the park, in the car, on a walk. We pray on the morning going to school, because my rail is to do everything I responsibly can to point them to Christ. But I do that with the faith that God will accomplish his side of the rail. And that is what you must do as well. If you fear that election would make people passive, remember where Paul is writing this letter from. He's in prison because he's so passionate about his responsibility to share the gospel. The truth is that God's sovereignty actually fuels our human responsibility. So let's continue now in verse 13 as we see that what God has accomplished in us comes with an incredible promise. Verse 13 now closes by saying, for those who believed in him, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We hear the word sealed and we might think of a jar, but in Paul's day, the word sealed is used on an envelope. When an envelope is actually written by someone, then they with wax, melt it, and seal it. That shows that the envelope is authentic and that is secured. This is what the Holy Spirit does as well. The Holy Spirit comes into our life to show that we are really God's and that we belong to God. Now notice verse 14, which tells us more. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. In what sense, then, does the Holy Spirit guarantee our inheritance? How do we know that we have the Holy Spirit? Well, to be fair, some Christians would disagree. Some Christians would say, well, when you speak in tongues or when you perform a supernatural miracle, that's when you really know you have the Holy Spirit. But does that occur in our passage anywhere? Our passage says nothing of that, and yet it says we can know that we have the Holy Spirit. How do you know you have the Holy Spirit? The answer is already said for us in the end of verse 13, you believe in Jesus. If you're thinking, well, Josh, that doesn't seem like that is that remarkable of a thing. But according to Ephesians 2, that's a miracle. When we were dead in our sin, Christ 
made us alive. We are saved not by works, but by faith. And this is not our own doing. It is a gift from God. The recognition that we belong to God is the faith that we have in His Son. And that faith holds us because we are sealed. Can I just tell you why it's been so encouraging for me this week to remember that those who are in Christ, God seals the Holy Spirit. If you've been a Christian for years, for decades, do you know what you observe? Maybe you don't want to admit it, but but you observe it. You observe that you are not what you were, but you also are not what you ought to be. Man, I have had thoughts that are so cruel and hateful that right after I have them, I think, how could I think something so wicked and still be saved? How could I be so cruel to somebody else, so hateful? How could I snap in my temper so badly and still be a Christian? And praise the Lord, the answer is because I have always only been saved by grace. And therefore, God can seal me on the basis of his son, not on the basis of my merit. You might be thinking this morning, but Josh, if you tell people that, then then what motivation is there to live? We're just going to live however we want. Can you turn to Ephesians 4? And let me show you the next time Paul says we're sealed. Ephesians 4, verse 30. Ephesians 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Bible does not see our sealing or our eternal security as a danger to our present holiness, but in fact the opposite. Because of my assurance and security, because of the sealing work of the Holy Spirit, there is now the Spirit's work within me to not push against Him. So the sealing is actually a blessing, both for my assurance, but also for my growth. Well, here we have this majestic mansion that we looked at for two weeks. And this majestic mansion is all about the amazing in Christ grace of God, what God has done from eternity past to eternity future. And the question remains, firstly, how do I get in? Because there are those who are not. And look again at verse 13. Actually, let's pick up at verse 12 of Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verse 12 and 13. How do I get into the mansion of God's majestic grace? In verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of His glory. And in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in Him. Friend, there's such good news for you because though none of us deserve to be in, and all of us have many reasons we belong outside of the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ has gone to the cross and he has died for all our sin. All that stood against us between us and God has been removed. He has forgiven our trespasses through his blood. And that means we can come near, not because we've cleaned ourselves up, not because we're going to do much better this next time, not because we've resolved to make consistent improvements. No, we come because we believe in him. This morning, you can be in the house of God, eternally secured, simply by hoping and trusting in Jesus. Our faith is in a person, a perfect one. So this morning, let me ask you, functionally, where do you get your source 
and sense of who you are? What do you look to as this will give me security? This will give me joy. This will give me hope. Friend, the only thing that can do that for us is Jesus. But here we've looked at the longest sentence of the Bible, and it's all about grace, and I have one more concern. Have you ever noticed um, God starts to work on you, and there seems to be like there's something happening in your soul, but the change kind of doesn't really follow? And sometimes that's because the surgery that God's doing hasn't gotten down to the root. And it hasn't pulled out the pride that needs to be pulled all the way out. Brothers and sisters, the clearest thing meditating on the grace of God ought to do for us is transformatively humble us. If we're able to leave this morning and think, you know, I am still a lot better than other people. If we replay conversations we've had with other people and the way we remember them is we were really spot on and they were really way off then the grace of God hasn't done its surgery yet to the root. Few people have been able to illustrate this so powerfully for me as Flannery O'Connor. In her short stories, she tends to get at the power of grace in a traumatic way. And yesterday I was rereading her short story, Revelation. Like a lot of O'Connor's work, it's pretty humorous. It's about a lady named Mrs. Turpin. She's in a doctor's office in a waiting room, and while she's there, she's internally evaluating everybody else there, who, of course, she's superior from. She's better than them based on their race, based on their size, based on their temperament, based on their activity. And then she actually starts to vocalize this out loud to a woman she eventually sits near. She starts to talk about how much better she is than that other people that are on the face of the earth. And her daughter, the friend's daughter, is sitting there reading a book. Well, eventually, Mrs. Turpin, feeling especially proud of herself, says this out loud. If it's one thing I am, it's grateful. When I think of all I could have been besides myself and all the things I have, I just feel like saying, thank you, Jesus. Well, at that point, the little girl can't take it anymore. And she does something interesting. (laughs) She takes her book, which is titled Human Development, and she throws it at Mrs. Turpin and hits her right in the eye. Then she jumps over and grabs Mrs. Turpin by the throat and starts to choke her out until she has an epileptic fit and they pull her back. Barely gasping for breath, Mrs. Turpin leans over her and says, What have you got to say to me, girl? She's kind of asking for an apology, but she also wants to know, Is there something I missed? And here's what the girl says to her. Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. (laughs) It's a pretty strong statement. Mrs. Turpin goes back home where she actually happens to have a hog pen. And as she's leaning over it, looking at it, thinking of who she is and how much better she is from everybody else, she starts to talk out loud to God. How am I a hog and me both? Why would you send a message like that to me, God? I mean, I break my back every day working. All the things I do for the church. If you want trash, go get yourself some trash then. How am I trash? And then a final surge of fury shakes her and she cries out to God, who do you think you are? Then she has a vision. That's why the book is titled Revelation. She sees a purple streak across the sky and she gets this vision of the people who are on their way to heaven. And in the vision, she sees that all the people leading the way are what she calls freaks and lunatics. Freaks and lunatics? going before the morally upright like Mrs. Turpin? 
Do you know what Jesus said in Matthew 21, verse 31? I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. See, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, how can any of us have any sense of moral superiority when God chose before the foundation of the world, predestined who he would adopt, redeemed through the blood of Christ, predestined our response, seals us with the Holy Spirit. It's all of grace. Meaning that the foot of the cross is level. So this morning, let Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, do what this sentence is intended to do to get to the root of our pride and rip it out and respond with gratitude to the God who saves. Let's pray together this morning. God, there is much pride in my own heart that needs to be removed. I I so sinfully think that I am where I am by choices that I've made or ways that I've responded better than the person next to me. But Lord, the truth is that your pre-temporal unconditional and unmerited grace in Christ is the only reason for anything good that I have. And one day, Lord, when we do stand before your final judgment throne, we can point to nothing about us that would earn our stay, but we can only point to Jesus Christ who still bears the scars in his hand and in his side that have purchased our redemption. Lord, someone here this morning maybe needs to the first time in their life say, God, I've trusted in my own decency, my own moralism, my own competency, but Lord, I I come now to trust only in Jesus because only He can make it for me. Perhaps someone this morning when we read Ephesians 5 thought, man, the sexually immoral can't go to heaven. I've been guilty of that. The people who are idolaters can't go. What hope is there for me? But the truth is there is hope in Jesus for anyone. So no matter what we've done, there is always forgiveness for those who come to Jesus Christ because your grace is inexhaustible. And Lord, I thank you also for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What an incredible thing it is that he is at work in us personally. So may he work now. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.